Machholz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 97, for the week of November 10th, 2021. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, November 10th, the moon is in our evening sky, 45% full, with first quarter, when the moon will appear half full, occurring on Thursday, November 11th at 1245 Universal Time. At about the same time, the moon passes south of Jupiter. That day would be an ideal time to find Jupiter in the daytime, starting with the moon and working northward. This week is a good week to look at the moon, although from the northern hemisphere it will be low in the southern sky. By next Tuesday, November 16th, the moon will be 90% full, rising an hour before sunset and up for nearly the whole night. The brightness of the moon will ruin the Leonoid meteor shower, which peaks on November 17th. It occurs in the morning sky, and the moon will still be up in the western sky when the shower peaks. We have a lunar eclipse coming up, not this week, but early next week. The full moon passes through the Earth's shadow and dims considerably. This occurs on the night of Thursday, November 18th, into Friday morning, November 19th. Now, most of the time, the moon passes north or south of this shadow, so we have no eclipse. About twice per year, it hits it, and everyone who can see the moon in their nighttime sky can see the eclipse. This time, North America can see all of the middle stages, as will most of South America, Australia, and Eastern Asia. The Earth cast two shadows into space. The penumbra is the outer shadow, and the umbra is the inner shadow. Someone standing on the moon, when in the penumbra, that is the outer shadow, will see part of the sun obscured by the Earth. As the moon creeps closer to mid-eclipse, more and more of the sun is hidden by the Earth. The result is that the moon gets darker and darker as less sunlight shines on it. Finally, the moon enters the umbria when no direct sunlight is shining on it. The only sunlight it gets is bent or refracted from behind the earth by our atmosphere. Much like a sunset shows a red sun, so the sunlight shining on the moon is red too. The further the moon travels into the inner shadow, the umbra, the darker red it gets. The final result is determined by two things, how deeply the moon goes into the shadow and the transparency of our atmosphere. Lots of volcanic dust will dim the moon, and we've had a few volcanoes lately. 
The moon will be well north of the equator and only six degrees south of the Pleiades, the seven sisters. A good experiment is to monitor how well you can see the Pleiades as the moon darkens. At mid-eclipse, not all of the moon will be inside the Earth's shadow. The Earth's shadow at this distance is about 1.4 degrees across, and the moon is only a half a degree across. The moon could fit inside the Earth's shadow if it wanted to, but instead it will pass through the southern part of the Earth's shadow. And a little bit of the southern part of the moon, about 3%, will stay outside this shadow. This will be the brightest part of the moon. The darkest part of the moon will be the northern part because it's closest to the center of the shadow. This is known as a partial lunar eclipse because the moon does not get fully into the Earth's shadow. It misses by 3%. There's nothing we can do about it. It is what it is. Most partial lunar eclipses are rather boring. The moon usually dims only slightly and the average person would not even notice it. But this partial lunar eclipse is different. The moon takes a very large bite out of the Earth's shadow, and the red colors, or orange or pink, will be very obvious to the average person. The view is spectacular to the unaided eye, in binoculars, and through the telescope. Don't forget the binocular view. This might be your best choice. Seasoned astronomers will be reminded of the planet Mars when they look at the eclipse moon at this phase, a red-orange ball with a bright spot on the edge, which would resemble the Mars polar cap. The whole event occurs on Thursday night, November 18th, and into the next morning. The center of the eclipse is at 4.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that translates to 1.03 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For about 100 minutes on either side of this time, at least part of the moon will be inside the embryo, and the Earth's shadow will be creeping across the moon's face. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, November 10th, through Tuesday, November 16th? It depends upon where you're located. This week we have five zones, and all you need to know is your latitude. North of 45 degrees north, you will not see the International Space Station at all. And south of 20 degrees south, you won't see it neither. That leaves the midsection of the Earth this week. From 18 through 45 degrees north, the ISS will be in both your morning and evening sky, but not for the whole week. You can see it in your morning sky for the first part of the week and the evening sky for the second part of the week. Between the equator and 18 degrees north, a double bonus as the International Space Station will be in both your evening and morning sky for the whole week. And between the equator and 20 degrees south, the ISS will be in your evening sky for the first part of the week and your morning sky for the second part of the week. To determine where you can see it in your sky, 
go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. The comets visible this week are plotted on Podcast 97, Maps 1 and 2. That's this week's maps. For more detailed real-time position in maps, go to heavens-above.com and click on Comets. Comet 2021A1 Leonard remains in our northern morning sky and is now magnitude 9 as it continues to brighten. It's moving towards the sun at about a half of a degree per day, and it will continue to speed up over the next month. It easily shows a dust tail visible in almost any instrument. I have been systematically visually searching for comets since January 1st, 1975. This past week, I surpassed 8,900 hours of searching, actual eye-to-eyepiece time. I don't count the setup time nor the time I spend checking star charts. When I started 47 years ago, I decided to count the number of hours rather than just comet discoveries because I can control the number of hours I search, not so much the number of comets that I find. I had read, before I began, that it takes about 300 hours of comet seeking to find a comet. William Bradfield, for his first two discoveries in the early 1970s, took that long, too. So, my first year, I searched for 307 hours and found nothing. Then, in 1976, 553 more hours, still nothing. Next, in 1977, 504 hours, still nothing. My first comet discovery in September 1978 took 1,700 hours, and my second one in 1985 took 1,742 hours. Since then, it's taken fewer hours with my average for my 12 named comet discoveries being 700 hours exactly. My most recent comet discovery was three years ago this week at 8,400 hours of searching. 8,400 hours divided by 12 is 700 hours. So it's been three years since the most recent visual comet discovery, and prior to that it was eight years. And I've searched 500 hours since my last comet discovery. Also, those 12 discoveries took 4,873 comet hunting sessions, most of them in the morning. So 4,873 divided by 12 is 406 sessions per discovery. I've done 255 sessions since my last find. Of course, a comet can come along at any time. They don't look at statistical averages. Back in the 1970s and 1980s and into the early 1990s, we averaged about 3.3 visual comet discoveries per year. The difference is that now the sky is covered by sponsored sky surveys designed to find asteroids that may be headed our way. These surveys find the comets that us visual comet hunters used to find. Plus, most of the visual comet hunters have stopped visually hunting and moved on to other aspects of astronomy, or they hunt for comets with electronic means such as camera or CCD. There are only about a half a dozen of us worldwide 
systematically, visually searching for comets. That is why it was eight years between visual discoveries in 2010 and 2018, and three years since the most recent one. Last year, I searched for 224 hours, the highest number of hours for me since 1995. Living in Arizona with good weather and dark skies and now being semi-retired gives me the opportunities to sweep for more hours. This year, 2021, we've had more clouds and rain throughout the summer than last year. And therefore, I presently have 155 hours for 2021 with just under two months to go. I'll probably end up with between 170 and 180 hours for the year. I still enjoy visual comet hunting. I I love the view of the sky through the telescope, and I consider it to be a challenge, especially now when the sky surveys leave very little of the sky unsearched. It certainly is much more difficult to visually discover a comet now than in the past, and it is more difficult than finding one in the sponsored sky surveys or on SOHO and SWAN images. This season, October and November, has traditionally been a busy time for comet hunters, as the prime area to find comets is full of galaxies, which look like new comets through the Comet-Seeking Telescope. Yes, the Leo-Virgo area is in our pre-dawn sky, the part of the sky most likely to yield a new comet. Like some comet hunters, and I'm not sure how many do this, I record the objects that I see while comet hunting, along with the telescopic meteors and satellites. A couple of mornings ago, in two hours of searching, I picked up 63 galaxies. I think that's a record high for me. 63 fuzzy objects, none of them being new comets. Oh well. That 2.0 hours of searching took two and a half hours as some of that time was spent confirming and writing down the galaxy's numbers. That area and the area south of the Big Dipper have lots of galaxies. I continue to work on refining the talk about visual comet hunting that I'll be giving over Zoom on Friday, November 19th to the Sacramento Valley Astronomical Association. Starting at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'll be covering the history of visual comet hunting and how I got involved in it and the comets that I've discovered. If you would like to receive a link to the live talk, contact me at this email address, dontheastronomer at gmail.com. When I receive the link, I'll forward it to you. Again, a limited number of spaces are available. Or you can join the SVAS between now and then and, as a member, receive a link to the talk. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? The moon is an excellent target this week in the evening sky. And prepare for the lunar eclipse on Thursday night, November 18th. And email me if you want to listen live to my talk on November 19th. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 97 for November 10th, 2021. I'm Don Makos. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmakos.com. That's where you find 
the three maps for downloading this week. And this is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. You can contact me at DonTheAstronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that is DonTheAstronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky and the lunar eclipse and some things to see in the evening sky. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.